Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. This is the conclusion of our interview with George Leopold, who wrote Gus Grissom's biography entitled Calculated Risk, The Supersonic Life and Times of Gus Grissom. It was initially published by Purdue University Press in 2016, and a paperback edition was released in 2019. In this podcast, co-hosts Eleanor Arrangers and Tom Hill wrap up their discussion with George with some questions on John Young's relationship with Gus, certain extracurricular activities many of the astronauts, including Gus, engaged in, Betty Grissom, and whether Gus would be proud of the biography George produced. Finally, we'll discuss what George's current project is focusing on. I have another Emily question. You had mentioned about John Young before. Did you have a chance to talk to John Young before he mm-hmm. passed away about Gus? Um, I tried everything I could. You know, the, 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 and, and the main reason was John Young was the only astronaut to ever yeah. fly in space with Gus Grissom, right, on Gemini 3 and, Three, yeah. and 1965. And John Young wasn't supposed to be on that flight. Frank Borman was selected to fly with Gus, and Gus got the flight because because Alan Shepard came down with Meniere's disease. So it's yeah, very interesting how how the crew selections worked out. But one day Borman said he had he went over to Gus's house. They were both in the Air Force, and I think the conclusion at the end of the discussion was that the Gemini spacecraft just wasn't big enough for those two egos. And, <laughs> And and Borman said, well, you know, it's okay. If Gus didn't want me, that's fine. I'd take another flight. So they picked John Young. And I think, you know, it was the commander's prerogative, right? And he, he I think they hit it off. And John Young and, and Gus spent uh, several years in St. Louis ringing out the Gemini spacecraft, which, of course, as you know, was is, is affectionately referred to as the Gusmobile. But I think John Young was able to keep up with uh, Gus on the factory floor, and he was able to keep up with Gus at night when they'd hit the bars. And you know, he, he would get John Young always, you know, Gus Gus was hard working and hard playing, and uh, they hit it off. Um, but I never did get to to, to interview John Young, who died. Yeah. Uh, I'm guessing in the last eighteen months. And but at the time I was trying to get through to him, he was of course writing a memoir with Jim Hansen, and my guess was, why should I talk to this guy? Yeah. I, want to, I want I want all of this stuff in my own book. And he was he was not doing very well at the time, but his book was quite helpful to me. And uh, I wish I could have talked to him. He was one of my favorite astronauts, and of course he was the guy who smuggled the. Uh, the, yes, the sandwich aboard Gemini 3, one of the great uh, gags in uh, right. human space flight history, right? I ran into him at one of the early Mars Society uh, conferences, 
And I, I didn't recognize him, you know, just as it was. I said, you're not wearing a name tag. You must be somebody important. He put out <laughs> oh, his man. hand and said, John Young. I'm like, holy cow. Wow. Neat. Neat. Yeah. And, you know, he took a, 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 a very broad view of, of, you know, what he had seen. What? God, he flew six times, right? Amazing. To stick your neck out six times and, and live to tell about it. But, you know, he really cared about the, the planet. And uh, he really felt strongly about, you know, we got to take care of the planet. And when you get up there, you can see all these different atmospheres. And my God, it's terrible. They're all anybody cares about. One documentary, he was quoted saying, all anybody cares about is $3 a gallon gasoline. That's just awful. I remember him saying that. Some real, some, some real characters and some, I mean, I mean, John Young flew what, right? The most dangerous uh, test flight ever. The shuttle? STS-1. God. Somebody tried to convince him to do a return to launch site. He said, no, not, yeah. on, not on purpose. Yeah. And uh, uh, the, the AP reporter, whose name escapes me, uh, you probably recognize his name, but I, when I interviewed him, he said when Bob Crippen was going out to the pad, he heard somebody say, good luck, Bob. And Bob turned and said, luck's got nothing to do with it. God. <laughs> So that that sort of that sort of encapsulates their thinking right there. That one phrase. Um, so you mentioned about these guys being hard partying and so forth. So we've got to ask the question. You know, we hear about all the what is it, the Cape cookies and all that stuff. I'm sure you may have heard stories along the way, along the journey of writing the biography, and any of any of the dirt on that. Well. Um... This this was one of the hardest parts of of r- trying to write uh, a, a man's life and to tell their story in toto. That's that's the goal of a biography, and if you don't, then it's just hagiography. And I will say that uh, based on what I did write, I, I have a chapter called extracurricular activities. It's part of the story, but I will tell you that. Uh, Lowell Grissom always tells me that his wife Bobette is mad at me for what I wrote, but I tell I tell Lowell Lowell that was part of the story. So, yeah, I mean, you know, Gus had sweeties, and uh, I'm told and I haven't read Roger Lanius's book, but I'm told that Roger Lanius claims in it that there that that Gus may have fathered a child out of wedlock. Uh, uh, there was information in Gus's military records that didn't really add up, but somebody, a young woman came to an Air Force base in the 1970s claiming to be Gus Grissom's daughter. But I, the, the, the chronology didn't add, didn't add up right. He would have had to have been in college or in Korea when this person was conceived but you know they were all. Uh, it was common knowledge that uh, uh, that there were uh, many of them were uh, unfaithful, and my conclusion was that you know this was something that was between Gus and Betty. You have to write about it's it's part of the story, but ultimately I conclude I left it ambiguous. I said that it's true that Gus Grissom had a mistress. It was flight. What I like about that, too, is that um, you were respectful of, of the history, even in talking about that 
you know, sort of sordid part of his past, which is part of the story. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And to ignore it is just not not playing it right. But it sounds by leaving things ambiguous, you know, if you list what you have found and and stop it there, it's like eh, you got to make your own decision. Yeah, I mean, there were several people. Yeah, I just I couldn't confirm any of this that that you know Gus had a sweetie and or sweeties, and that one of them may have been at Arlington on the day he was buried, and that North American had flown her into the funeral. But you know, unless I can talk to that person and interview them, it's it's not going to be in the book. I think some of it was relegated to footnotes in the book, but unless you can talk to these people and confirm it, then as a journalist, uh, you, you can't go with it. But, uh, you know, there were lots of stories flying around and, and, and the attitude back then was that, you know, with, with him, with JFK, you know, the mainstream reporters wouldn't go near this stuff. They wouldn't report it. And, you know, that's all changed since Gary Hart, but, it, but in those days, uh, nobody would touch it. Um, Talk to us a little bit about Betty. Well, um, Betty was a tough cookie. And she neither approved or disapproved of the project. I did interview her briefly. Um, But basically, Betty uh, was aggrieved after Gus died and was pretty much alone. You know, uh, um, Mark. Grissom Gus had two sons, Scott and Mark. And Scott is a complicated story. But uh, someone asked Mark, um, you know, did things change much after your dad was gone? And Mark said, well, not really, because he wasn't around much. He said in 1966, the last full, full year of Gus's life, Mark estimated he was home about six weeks. He was thoroughly consumed with with you know fixing this Apollo spacecraft and getting this getting this thing into orbit, and Gus was married to the space program, and you know Betty had to deal with this, and 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 this all began. I mean, they were high school sweethearts, and they got married when Betty was eighteen, and Gus came back from the Air Force, and they. They got an apartment in Main Street in Mitchell, Indiana. And, you know, as I said before, Gus decides, well, I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life. And they, you know, they took a risk and they, they left and they went to Purdue. And she worked and put him through school. Gus got through Purdue in three and a half years. And then she has her first child, Scott, and Gus is at, in flight training. So she's on her own. So, this, yeah, this is a pretty rough life. And, uh, when Gus comes back and and uh, they finally have some stability and they have to stop, you know, she doesn't have to keep shipping her furniture all over the place. And Gus is at Wright Pat and they live in Enon, which is near Dayton. And finally, there's some stability and Gus is going home from di- for dinner some nights and Betty's, you know, got a, got got new furniture and she's got the colors on the walls she wants. And then, you know, he gets this call from NASA. Well, she backed him. You know, she always said, you know, Gus didn't have to ask me if he wanted to fly. And once he gets into to, uh, the astronaut corps, you know, every weekend Gordo or, or 
Deke Slayton saying, hey, let's, you know, let's hop on a, a fighter at Langley and fly cross country, you know, and get our, and get some flight pay and, you know, keep up our proficiency. What did John Glenn said? Gus and Deke cross country and back in 10 words or less. So, you know, she's, she's an Air Force wife. She's the wife of a test pilot. And she, she was very stoic about it. I mean, that's the way people in Southern Indiana are. They're stoic and, and quite frankly, rather provincial. So after Gus's death in 1967, she, you know, she pretty much just buries her emotions and Purdue helps out her, her sons. They both go to school at Purdue and she's very grateful for that. But there's a story that I believe is true uh, that so the astronauts of course had this this sweetheart deal with Life magazine which greatly increased their income and the Mercury 7 guys were pl very pleased I think they each got like $500,000 <clears> so this basically you know this was a lot better than combat pay well by the early 1970s the pie for the exclusive stories for the astronauts is getting sliced thinner and thinner. And the story was that Pete Conrad was chosen to approach Betty and say, look, Betty, we're thinking of, of cutting out the original guys. They're not flying anymore. And we got all these other guys coming in. So we're thinking of dropping uh, you guys and, he makes the mistake of saying to Betty, you know, most of these new guys have never heard of Gus Grissom. I don't know if that's true or not, but supposedly Betty went off and said, you'd bet, well, they if they haven't heard of Gus Grissom, they better find mm -hmm. out. And that's when she sued North American. And when she sued North American for the death of her husband and his crew, she burned her bridges a test pilot's wife doesn't do that. You, you know, this is what you signed up for. So when she did that, she pretty much isolated herself and kind of remained that way for the rest of her life. So yeah. she was aggrieved. And, you know, she lived alone in Houston and died last year. She was buried at Arlington with Gus last, about a year ago, last December I was there. She basically, you know, she went along with it, but, you know, her and, and Mark in particular said that, you know, NASA never really helped us. We had to figure all of this stuff out on our own. She didn't buy into the, uh, what was the buy oh, into Oh, happy and thrilled. Yeah. People from Southern Indiana are not going to go for that crap. So she didn't really want to go along with it. So it's kind of a sad story. And, um, but right. now she's back with Gus at Arlington. Well, that's good. Do you think, um, you think Gus would be proud of the biography? Boy, I sure hope so. I gave it my best shot. It took seven years of my life. I vowed that I'd give it my best shot. You know, there are certainly things as a first-time author I would have done differently, and you learn a lot when you go through this process. And to, to organize 120,000 words is not easy the first time. And uh, I made some mistakes. We corrected them in the paperback. Gene Kranz always said, don't get the first edition of my book, get the second edition because we corrected the mistakes. 
you know, I I just wanted people to understand the contributions this guy made, and and I again I think he and his wife sort of symbolize this idea that ordinary people, if they work hard, they can accomplish extraordinary things. And this this guy from middle of nowhere, Indiana, did just that. I mean, he rose to the very pyramid uh, of the right the right stuff pyramid, and. Had he lived, he would have walked on the moon. If things had worked out, he could have been the first. I think you might have mentioned you might be thinking about a book about Apollo 1. Yeah, I've uh, been pursuing uh, the fire, which is, a, uh, as I said, you know, that's that's the turning point in the space race. And much of the material is restricted and or classified. Uh, I have been attempting to get into Langley to see spacecraft 012, the Apollo 1 spacecraft, which is uh, in reasonably good care at, at NASA Langley. I saw the building, but I couldn't get in. And I've got a formal request in to view it, but um, so far it's gone nowhere. I've been told that uh, even Langley engineers can't get in to see it. Part of the problem is that mm. it's being treated almost like evidence. And I think part of the reason is because Gus's oldest son, Scott Grissom, over the last couple of years has gone around, and I've got a scene or two in the book about it, saying that NASA murdered my father. Well, NASA was certainly negligent and, and, and culpable in the death of the Apollo 1 crew, but it's uh, a, a exaggeration, of course, to say, a gross exaggeration to say that NASA murdered his father. So NASA is very wary about this, and you know, they don't, they really don't like to talk about it much. They just, they'd rather talk about the successes. And I guess that's, uh, you know, I, I, I can't blame them for that, but I've got a legitimate historical reason for seeing it. So I'm going to try. And there's other information um, at the national archives. There may be other audio channels besides mm -hmm. the one that Mark Gray released that you may be familiar with. That's got the horrible uh, and uh, you know, the, the, the sequence of events right before the fire and the first call of fire by the crew. But there may be other audio channels that I'm aware of that may shed more light on what happened, what happened inside the spacecraft after the first call of fire, what Gus Grissom was doing when, when, when the spark uh, lit the cabin on fire, he might've been out of his couch but you know, I have to, I have to get access to these historical materials before I can reconstruct it. I tried the best I could based on the the Apollo two hundred four investigation to reconstruct in my book what happened during the fire to the you know to to the extent you can with the available information. But I think there's much more. So I think it's historical significance. So I'm going to pursue it. But much of it is restricted under the Freedom of Information Act privacy exemption, which has to do with the families, um, you know, I don't. I'm not sure that NASA is that concerned about uh, the privacy of the families. Uh, you know, there are there are there are a lot of exemptions of the Freedom of Information Act, and 
privacy is one of the toughest ones to get around legally. But I'm going to try, and if I can't shake something loose, maybe I'll start a process whereby some researcher down the road will be able to shake some of the stuff loose because it's part of the historical record. Yeah. This is, you know, this was a taxpayer-funded program, right? The Apollo 1 spacecraft is government-furnished equipment. Um, I don't intend to exploit it in right. any way. Uh, I just want to know what happened because it was a key moment in the history of uh, human spaceflight. So, so I'm chasing it. I don't know if it's going to go anywhere, but that's what I'm working on now. And of course, when you do a book, everybody asks, what are you working on next? So that's what I'm working on now. Right. Oh, well, good luck with that chase. I, uh, yeah, it's, it's a tough one. Yeah. Along the same lines, you know, of Challenger and Columbia and. Yeah. I'm right. And I'm well aware of the sense I'm, 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 I'm keenly aware of the sensitivities involved and I in no way would ever want to exploit this tragedy or cause pain for the families. Uh, I, I, I would mention here that I, I, before I mentioned there's a permanent display and I, I applaud Bob Cabana, the director of Kennedy Space Center for working out a deal with Betty Grissom where they are, they're displaying the, the, the inner and outer hatches of the Apollo and spacecraft. And it's very significant. People need to see that. And Betty for a long time tried to get the spacecraft displayed and NASA didn't want to do it. And to his credit, Bob Cabana worked out a solution that she would agree to. And the families were satisfied with the, uh, with the display down there. It's a permanent display. And I, you know, hopefully it gave them some, some closure and, you know, so people can see this stuff for themselves and realize the sacrifices that went into getting human beings to another world. We hope you enjoyed our three-part interview with George Leopold on the supersonic life and times of Gus Grissom. Tune in for our next podcast, where we interview another terrific space historian, Jake Allentine. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.